Hopefully there will be no emergencies today. I sure hope so. All right. Uh, Do you need uh, me to record on this end at all? Is there a way for me to record? uh, If you want to. This records uh, everyone. Okay. All right. Uh, Hello. Welcome to... uh, I still want to say shoot the piano player. Uh, Dark Habits, a... And a mode of our podcast. This is uh, the episode on El Sur, which uh, I'll get to uh, how how this episode even happened uh, in a second. But first, I want to start by saying uh, how I want to start every episode is uh, trans rights are human rights. And if you disagree with that statement, why are you listening to a podcast about a mode of our? And uh, yes, yeah, so uh, I'll end it with that. So, yes, so this episode is on El Sur, a movie I'd never heard of until the guest, uh, first-time guest for a season, John Cribbs, brought it up. So, uh, first off, John, welcome, uh, uh, well, John Cribbs, I should say, welcome to uh, welcome to this season. Hey, Spencer, happy to be here. It's always fun trying to remember what your podcast is named at this time, so I'm glad <laughs> I remembered Dark Habits. I got it. It's a memorable one. Yeah. Oh, next season, a topic. I think it, it'll be more up your alley, potentially. Ooh, I'm intrigued. And, and it'll be a fifth and final season because I don't want to keep doing this forever. And I've run out of topics that I want to talk about. I think that's good. Once you're done, you know, talking about stuff you're interested in, why keep talking? That's just absurd. Yeah. I'm with you on that. And uh, no Joel this time. Uh, he has life stuff getting, getting in the way. So... To replace Joel, I have another uh, J name, uh, the replacement J Dog, uh, for this episode, for this episode only, uh, John Arminio. Hey, thanks, uh, thanks for having me. It's uh, it's great to be back. Oh yeah, it's it's as if we spoke. I think uh, as, as if we spoke, you know, exactly a week ago. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm always happy to talk about interesting movies and. Um, I was very happy to be introduced to to both El Sur and Spirit of the Beehive. It was a good time. Um, actually, you know, off the top, big time Mia Culpa, I feel like a real chump. Um, because, you know, like Guillermo del Toro is like hmm? my guy, right? And so after watching these two movies and have never seen them before, <laughs> I feel like a real idiot. Um, <laughs> it's, it's like it's like if your favorite filmmaker is Martin Scorsese and have never bothered to check out um, Palin Pressburger or something. It's just like, like what have I been doing with my life? Um, so or if I'm, you love Fassbender and you've never seen a Douglas Sirk movie before, I get it. Yeah, yeah. You're like, oh, Pan's Labyrinth makes a lot, makes a lot more sense to me. Now. Yeah, wow. Yeah. <laughs> The Devil's Backbone. Yeah. Um, no wonder yeah, it's uh, obsessed with the Spanish Civil War. So uh, <laughs> yeah, I've been in the same boat. I was like watching this, like this feels like uh, Del Toro. And I couldn't place it until you just brought it up. Yeah, and of course, like as soon as I watch this, I just googled their two names together, and it's like, oh, well, here's him giving an hour long lecture on Spirit of the Beehive on YouTube. Like, oh, all right, well. <laughs> It's pretty apparent, and he's very forthcoming with his influences, though. I don't know how this passed me by since, like, I've been obsessed with this movie since Hellboy. 
He's upfront about how much this influenced Mimic. (laughs) (laughs) I I think Mimic is the one movie he doesn't like to talk about. Right. (laughs) Did he do The Faculty? Was that like the big studio? Robbie Rodriguez. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, his big Uh, studio entree was Blade 2. I thought you did an earlier one that was like a mainstreamy. No, fan. I, I think Mimic was was before that, but that was uh, a disappointment for many reasons. And I think oh, Mimic okay. and Faculty were both Dimension releases, right? That went might be the, why. Went through the yeah. whole wine Weinstein ringer, getting cut up and regurgitated by <laughs> hack non-artists. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're still hiring auteur directors and telling them not to do the thing you hired them for. With yeah. studios. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, uh, uh, so Cribs, uh, you, oh, I sent you the the prompt of for the season to you. Uh, you gave me a list of like five or six things, and we kind of reduced it to I think four, maybe. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, uh, why why did you pick Elser? Elser is a movie that is so close to my heart, you know, along with its sister film, Spirit of the Beehive. Um, just such a piece of my soul, this movie, you know. I uh, uh, had a great uh, opportunity to see it long before it was available publicly, before Criterion put it out. Chris Funderburg and I saw it at an anthology film in um, the city. And it was one of those kind of situations where, like, you know, Spirit of the Beehive had come out, had been released on disc, so it was like, we got to get there early. This place is going to be packed. You're never able to see El Sur anywhere. And of course, there were like two other people there, which is kind of, you know, another one of those situations where it's like what I'm excited for is not necessarily what the public in general is excited for. But it was, uh, yeah, I, I was, I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know anything about the movie. I just knew, you know, <laughs> that Victor Reese had made only three movies and this is one of them. And uh, the first one was amazing. And the second one did not disappoint either. But I'm really curious to hear what you guys have to say about it. Uh, John and I are doing uh, spy movies right now over on the Pink Smoke podcast. And I realized every time I asked John, so what do you think of this one? I get so anxious because I, I put his opinion so highly that I'm, I'm really curious every time whether he liked a movie or not, like what his thoughts are. So when I heard he was going to be joining us on the episode, I was like, oh, I really hope he likes this movie. I really hope it's up his alley. So I'm curious to hear what you guys thought. Well, yeah, I um, I I really love both of these movies. Um, they're definitely a pair of contemplative pieces, but they're just so gorgeous with you know these incredibly emotional and effective performances from you know these child actors and just such like self-reflective storytelling on, on the part of Eris and like it never veers into magical realism, but there's still such like an air of imagination with, with, with both of these movies and, you know, with, with spirit of the beehive, just, just starting with this village being so enthralled with, the original Frankenstein, I was just immediately hooked with the filmmaker and his perspective. So yeah, it was, it was a real treat to discover these movies. Hmm. Uh, 
Yeah, like I've I've heard of Spirit of the Beehive for uh maybe like five or six years. So I first really got into like the I guess like the artsy Criterion side of things. But it's one of those like uh I don't know anyone who really loves it yet, or if, or having come across people anyone who's like talked about that much. So it's kind of one of those. It's on a back burner. And I and El Sir was just like, well. Cribs, you picked it, so I guess it's good. It's like this was that's how I first heard of it. Yeah, it doesn't John, even have that. The, the like way you fe- the way you talked about my opinions, as soon as I know I'm going to be discussing a movie with you, with you, I'm like, oh, I, I hope he likes this movie because I hold your opinions in in great esteem. Oh, thank you. Yeah, no, I uh, was really really happy that really happy to hear you guys both liked. I think that's what you're saying, Spencer. Right? Did you enjoy yeah. it? Yes. Uh, the first, well, uh, short stories. Uh, I first started to watch it when uh, I was feeling a little sick, and then uh, after like forty-five minutes, like I, I have to evacuate my bowels immediately. So that kind of, uh, th- so I had to go do that instead. And the second time, I was tired after D and D went a little longer than usual, and I fell asleep. And so today, I was finally actually able to pay full attention. Uh, to it, so it took three tries. It's not like last season with um, that boring ass Antonioni movie. It took four days to get through because it's terrible. <laughs> it, it is curious as to like what strikes us as boring. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like for me, like the last third of two thousand one is like interminable. Um, like, all right, I get it. We're on a trip or whatever, um, or a- Antonioni. But when the, the opening, you know, thirty seconds or of a minute of El Sur is this incredibly slow fade in onto a child's bedroom, and I'm like enthralled <laughs> for, for the for the whole time. So it's it's such a subjective uh, measuring stick, but uh, you know, it's it's a lot of people. Qu- Talking quietly in in bare rooms, but I'm I'm into it for the whole running time. Yeah, and I want to get get this out of the way first. There there's a connection to I think the worst Spike Lee movie. Joel would disagree with me on this. He likes this one for some reason. But uh, Miracle at Saint Anna, uh, mm-hmm. the dad and Elser is a townsfolk person, town elder or something. In Miracle, which watching this, I was like, that guy looks familiar. And then I looked up and I was like, God damn it, he's in that Spike Lee movie. <laughs> You're the only person who would recognize anyone from that movie <laughs> in another movie. <laughs> uh, uh, who was it? Uh, Michael K. Williams was in that mo- was in a Spike Lee movie for, I think, five minutes. Because Michael K. Williams in a movie, yeah. so he never gets anything to do. <laughs> He's well. Even when he gets nothing to do, he's still memorable. Yeah, and uh, and the uh, Walton Goggins is in it playing a racist because that's mm. yeah, that's all I got to do at that point in time. Yeah, but uh, yeah. Uh, anyways, uh, yeah. So like that. I mean, the that 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 ruined the movie for me. It's just like Miracle at Saint is just a disaster in many ways. I don't know if you guys have seen that movie or not. 
I have. I saw it in the theater. I um, oh, no. I was definitely I was definitely disappointed. I don't think it's terrible. Certainly, it's not as bad as Defy Bloods, his other war movie. Uh, but yeah. I, I I so I don't think it's his worst movie. But it's definitely not very good. It's definitely there. There's a moment that just totally took me out of the movie where I think it's a German soldier or it could be an Italian soldier. Mm-hmm hands a gun to one of the wounded Americans and says, defend yourself and runs away. And I was just like, no soldier on any army on any planet is handing a loaded gun to an enemy soldier. Fuck you. That is never happening. I appreciate that. He was like, Oh, you know, you know, the act, the axis powers had, you know, good people on them too, but it's like, <laughs> yeah, but that's, that's absurd. No one would ever do that. Give me a break. Spike. Yeah, uh, I think that movie is incredibly boring. It's him trying to be like, I can do Seven Samurai, uh, and it's like, no, you can't, Spike. <laughs> anyway, uh, it's yeah, a letdown so, for, sure, for sure. Yeah, and it's a Disney movie, which is also kind of weird. Uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, besides that, uh, I think the only and the only other the. Uh, uh, the actress who played the, I'm going to double check, I think it was the child uh, version, she became a Motivar's visual effects person. Oh, wow. oh the uh, eight-year-old Australia? Uh, I want to make sure it's that one. It's uh, Sun Souls. Uh, my Spanish is not good, uh, but yes, the, the, the eight-year-old one. Oh, wow. That's cool. Yeah, she did. Uh, the she's basically done like the last stretch of his movies and Expendables too. Oh, all right. <laughs> From Erise to Expendables two, what a journey! <laughs> yeah. Speaking of boring movies that should be exciting, Expendables <laughs> franchise. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you. Yeah, Great nice. concept, bad poor execution, <laughs> for sure. Yeah. This does add Cynthia Rothrock to the movies already. She should have been in the first one. Yeah. But whatever. It's macho bullshit. Oh, she. Never mind. We're not going to go down the Cynthia Rothrock <laughs> road. I love her, but I wish she was given a better career. Oh, it's, for sure. Yeah. 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 I, I've watched some of her other stuff, and it's like, well, she's great. <laughs> but but she's great, and that's it. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So. Uh, always get the best scripts for sure. No. Okay, so uh this like so watching this movie to me reminded me of a couple things in particular. Elser I'm talking about. Um certain parts are the cuz like this wasn't a thing where like I took great notes as a thing. It was like I just kind of wrote down how I was feeling and what how it made and like what it made me think of. Cuz it's this is not really a plot movie. There's, I guess there technically is a plot, but that's not really the point. At least I, I don't think that's really a point. I would agree, yeah. Yeah, it's it's very much about how the daughter feels about her father and how that changes and how she has to, to reckon with those emotions throughout her childhood. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah, but like mainly it made me think of um, the color pomegranates in certain scenes where how the movie has like these very still shots kind of like uh, i'm not sure if anyone's seen that here well uh uh, uh j-dog have you seen color pomegranates i have not seen it no 
I don't know if you would like it, because it's basically an hour of just living paintings. That's a biopic about, I think, a poet mm-hmm. uh, from Georgia, the country, not the state. Yeah, I've I've heard of it, but I, I have not seen it, no. Yeah, so, uh, but I mean, I, I like these movies, so maybe. Yeah, maybe. But, uh, yeah, and it's like, they're, and they're very still shots in this movie feel like this... Uh, that's like made me think of the color pomegranates in the sense of like it's telling you a lot and it's n- without without uh this purely was visuals and it's like and it's, it's still a shot or it just feels like a living painting yeah there's definitely um a ton of chiaroscuro chiaroscuro am i pronouncing that right uh going on in in El Sur it's like if um a spirit of the beehive has a ton of vermeer in it this is all sorts of Caravaggio, especially in the scene where uh, Estrella is sitting on her fa- her father's lap and he's sort of showing her the, the pendulum. That's that could be out of like a, a late Italian Renaissance painting. Yeah, and the pendulum thing like that feels like a Jorowski type of weird magical nonsense thing. But reversely, Jorowski, it I'd be like, shut the fuck up already! Like I can't stand Jorowski at all. <laughs> I would also get time, real uncomfortable uh, with a scene with a yeah. father whispering into his daughter's ear in a Jodorowsky movie. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but in this one, it's fine. It's sweet and adorable. Yeah. If you want to hear uh, me and Funderburg trash Jodorowsky for like 10 minutes, listen to the episode <laughs> on Belle de Jour from last season. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah, well, he, uh, Iris is definitely, it's funny being such a huge fan of him and his films because usually such a aggressively stylistic filmmaker is not my cup of tea, you know, like it's, there's a lot of filmmakers. I think about Terrence Malick a lot hmm. when I uh, see these movies and not just because the younger version of the daughter reminds me so much of Linda Mann's on, in certain shots. And so it's easy to kind of compare it to something like Days of Heaven. Hmm. I just think like this Terry Malick take notes this is the right way to do this kind of thing this is the right way to use voiceover and the right way to show us things without explicitly telling us and to have such a beautiful painterly uh frame you know i mean if i were terry malik i'd watch your theories and be like i I give up like why i'm never going to be able to do anything like this everything is just going to be lagging behind this other filmmaker and i once called spirit of the beehive Tarkovsky for kids, which I have regretted calling it ever since. Uh, Marcus Penn brings it up all the time, uh, but but it but the Tarkovsky comparison I think is interesting, you know, because I think oh, shots of this made me think of Stalker, just like yeah, the color tone sure. and the framing just feels like uh, the scenes in the house with is it Monkey is the daughter in Stalker, or do they call her Monkey mm-hmm. in the subtitles? Yeah, yep. mm-hmm. exactly. Yeah, no, it's like that, and it's like the. Um, the, the railway sequence from uh, Spirit of the Beehive, especially, you know, the, the barren kind of Catalian plateau that they live on mm-hmm. in that film, you know, is very, yeah, there's, you get a lot of Stalker, you get a lot of Solaris. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that you could compare. But I'm, but with Eurice, I think that's just, oh my God, he's just such a natural artist that going into the lives of these people really is imbued in the aesthetic in a way that I think a lot of other filmmakers struggle to do. I've also, it's interesting revisiting it now because when I first saw it, it was years and years ago. I wasn't a father yet. And 
I had a reaction similar to when I watched the movie Poltergeist when I was a kid versus when mm-hmm. I saw it as an adult. When I was a kid, I was definitely thinking of the kids and sympathizing with the kids and seeing Elser when I was younger, even though I wasn't a kid, I still thought, you know, this guy is all, this father is awful. And, you know, I can't believe she has to put up with this pathetic jerk and having complete sympathy for Estrella in the film. And now that I have daughters and I have a 13 year old daughter and I'm starting to experience that, that loss of magic, that loss of like, blind adoration that you get from your daughter when you're when she's younger you know when she gets older and she's you know experienced more and you're less a mystery to her and you're less of a hero to her it is crushing it's Mm -hmm. crushing and so that's that final scene in the restaurant between them i can't even watch it now i have so much more sympathy these days for the father than i do for her now i'm thinking like Grateful little jerk, you know? Like, that's your dad, man. Don't leave him out to dry. He's clearly got issues, you know? You can sympathize with him a little bit. It's funny having that kind of different reaction, even though I still obviously, you know, love her and, you know, kind of mm-hmm. follow her journey the same way I used to. I have, like, a fresh perspective on him as well. So it's kind of interesting. Uh, yeah. Arisa's yeah. sort of perspective on... Um, paternal inadequacy I think is really interesting because you know Fernando in the first film outright betrays his daughter and you know mm-hmm. betrays the the morality of of the film really and and is sort of covering uh, for himself and his own is the his personal betrayal of his own morality uh, in in the first film but in in El Sur, yeah, I th- he's somebody who is definitely struggling, you know, and aware of his own inadequacies, and that leads to, like, his, his tragic downfall, and he's desperately trying to make up for that uh, in, the eyes, in the eyes of his daughter. Um, and just reading the way John Cribbs, you were talking about this movie, and... And the way other people have written about it, it it does. You know, this movie has the power to to make me think about my own relationship with my own father. But you know, like for me, you know, my dad is such like an upright, like North Star kind of a guy. Like I don't know if he was ever magical for me. He was much more like, of a grounding force, like, reminding me of the reality of the world. Yeah, uh, I had the same experience. We both have military dads, yeah, so I had yeah. the exact same experience mm-hmm. with mine. I have a military mom, and, uh, like, I kind of, like, watching this, like, that was kind of more of my mom. She doesn't have, like, you know, same story arc or anything, but just kind of, like, a little more distant because she's kind of always busy and now that i'm older it's have a more more of a relationship than i did when i was younger because now like i can understand things better and like uh stuff that stuff you know decisions uh uh, throughout my life i understand now that i'm an adult and uh yeah like this movie just made me just feel a lot about like growing up and it's the moment I, in episode in the Spike Lee season we talked about that um, 
Oh, is that movie called? The Samuel Jackson movie from the late 1990s, uh, Eve's Bayou, and how that movie mm-hmm. is ultimately about um, realizing your parents are just people and not like mythical heroes. And this is like an even more devastating version of your dad's the kind of just a guy who ha- who's who doesn't know all the answers, who's who's you know, who's has his own issues. Yeah, I mean, this is a story about adult failure, you know, and when that mystery, uh, the parent, when the parent moves from being the most fascinating, mysterious entity to just an abstraction, you know, it's just something else that's in your life. It's just like Spear of the Beehive is, you know, is a story about that, as John mentioned, that kind of betrayal. Um, I... Sorry. Of course, my dad, you know, I said that, you know, I had the same experience with John growing up with like a a dad who worked all the time, who, you know, was always away, always like working for the family, always doing his duty. So he he wasn't like a water divining guy. He wasn't a guy who went out to to do water dowsing and had like a reputation for this kind of magical pseudo silence. Uh, He didn't uh, have a secret room where he did his experiments, Uh, you know, so that literal mystique, you know, in the movie wasn't my experience growing up. But I've always wanted to have that over, you know, with my own kids. There's this Harlan Ellison story that he loved to tell all the time where his uh, he did something bad. And his father took him, you know, upstairs and spanked him with a, a belt, which was the style at the time, you know. And later in the day, he was looking for his parents in the house and he couldn't find them anywhere. And uh, he finally found them in their bedroom and his father was sobbing uncontrollably and his mother was trying to, you know, console him. And he was at that point, of course, that he realized like, Oh my dad, he, literally in the same day, his dad went from being this tyrant or this kind of Lord over him to being mm-hmm. a, just a regular human being. I kind of had a similar ish experience when I was a kid and we had a bunk bed and I was on the top of the bunk bed. And my mom mm-hmm. was like kissing my brother goodnight or whatever. And she wanged her head really hard on like the bottom of the, the bunk bed and started crying. And I was terrified. I was felt so unsafe in that moment to see this vulnerability in my parent for the first time. And I think it's something that we've all kind of experienced in like a parent or a parental figure where that, that mysticism is lost or that kind of, you know, that, that thought of control that your parents actually, you know, <laughs> have some kind of a better, higher power than you are. And they're not just a regular person, just, just a normal guy, just like you and me, you know, and this yeah. film captures it better than anything I've ever seen. And, you know, I'm also interested in how El Sur depicts the relationship of the mother with the daughter, because it seems like they're, they're much closer as almost peers in the way that, you know, they, they sit and, and read together, they sort of do house projects together, um, they talk about the father with each other and try and figure him out, figure out where his power comes from. And so, you know, there's this very, very much a, a more grounded parental figure um, who, who seems to have a much, you know, like, I got to say, healthier relationship w- with, with her child than the father does. But the film is... But she also, she also allies with the father against the mother. The mother becomes the bad guy mm-hmm. when she's younger when she adores the father and she sees the mother as the enemy. Yeah. She even has that line where she says, you know, I become a secret accomplice to my dad. 
when I found it about this secret woman that he thinks about all the time. It's um, a lot. It's a there's a lot more of that in the book, which okay. uh, was written by Adelaide Garcia Morales. It's more of a novella. It's very short, but uh, she was married to Victor Reese at the time, and she wrote this book, which she adapted into a screenplay before it was published. In the book, there is a lot of her seeing her mother as her enemy. There's she she acts out a lot more than she does in the movie. She has one point where her she and her friend are playing Joan of Arc, and she wanted to be Joan of Arc, but the friend had called it first. So she's like, "Okay, you want to be Joan of Arc?" So she like ties her up and sets <laughs> sets some twigs on fire underneath her, and of course everyone freaks out, and her mother you know locks her in her room, and she it's kind of a nice uh, comparison to Spare the Beehive because she says she sees her mother sees her as a monster, and she feels like a monster inside of her own house, like the Frankenstein monster. She has that kind of sympathy, which mm. I, it's interesting what, what he decided, what Victor Reese decided not to include in the movie when you read the book, uh, because it's almost all scenes of like anger and, you know, uh, fr- you know, frustration kind of coming out, big emotions. I think he made a very obvious choice not to show big emotions in this film. There's even a point later in the film where he says, you know, you came in late and I yelled at you. We don't see that scene, though. He just tells her, you know. We had, we've had, we had fights, you know, like the closest you come is you see, you hear them when she's in bed, kind of having an argument in another room. Um, But again, not on screen. And that's another thing where you talk about the mother and the representation of the mother in spirit of the beehive, the mother and father who are living in the same house, but are totally estranged are never in the same shot together. There's like a very, very specific scene where she's lying in bed and he comes in and you see his shadow, you know going across her as she's pretending to sleep, but they're never actually sharing the same frame. El Sur does a kind of similar thing where even though they do share frames every once in a while, they're never looking at each other. They're never, you know, enacting with one another. If you watch the movie more than once, it makes that early scene of him using uh, the, the pendulum to predict what kind of baby they're going to have, what the sex of the baby is going to be so much more, profound that they have this intimate moment together at the start of the film that they're never going to have again you know that they're just complete strangers like spirit of the beehive they're just complete strangers living in the same house after we came out of the movie at anthology that was the first thing that funderburg said was like were they ever in the same shot together (laughs) it's like yeah they were but you wouldn't know it because they are so completely estranged within the same shot so like scenes where the the mother comes to visit from the south where they're all together, they're just, they're not to those two characters or when they're dancing, when he's dancing with the daughter, those scenes, they're not together in those scenes. So a very interesting kind of distancing of these two characters. Hmm. So I guess, do we know what happened with their relationship between that scene where he's predicting the sex of the child? And, you know, when we meet Estrella, when she's like seven years old, did they just grow apart? Because I, I think uh, another there's a, a lot of commonalities between these two movies, obviously, but I think the the ripple effects of the Spanish Civil War has sort of hollowed out not only Spanish culture um, but individuals as well. Like their pasts have been torn asunder, their personalized personal beliefs ha- have been taken away from them, um, their, their purposes in life have been taken because we learned that the the mother used to be a teacher, but her life was made very difficult because of the reprisals by the Franco regime. So I don't think she's teaching anymore. She's sort of getting that 
Um, she's working that muscle by teaching her daughter to read, but that's all she can do. So I'm just wondering, is, is, is part of that estrangement, is that a result from the stresses of post-Civil War Spain? 100%. Absolutely. In both movies, the characters have been completely changed. Their lives have been completely changed by what happened in the Civil War. And this one specifically, as you said, the mother's lost her career over her support for the Republic. And the father left his home because he and his father had different political views, uh, which is uh, expressed in that really beautiful scene between Malegros, his former nanny, and Australia when they're in the bedroom together. It reminded me of the scene with uh, Judd Hirsch in uh, The Fablemans recently, actually. That kind of eccentric relative comes to yeah, visit. Yeah, yeah. And there's like, you know, this kind of funny scene between them and the young kid. I know, uh, Spencer, you love the uh, the interloper coming into the house and changing yes. everything. <laughs> this mm-hmm. is kind of like the, a mini version of that. You know, oh, this okay. uh, this strange character coming mm-hmm. from another part of land and, and, and representing the past, you know, and, and kind of leading to revelations to these younger characters. Uh, but the father, yeah, he left, we assume, this actress, you know, who he was in a relationship with, which we learn more about if the film had had its third act. We should mention that this is, this comes, this is an incomplete film, that Victor Ruiz had a whole third act, which is in the book, that he wanted to film. And the producer just said, no, nah, I think you're good. I think we're done. <laughs> he just decided for no good reason, like... You don't need to film anymore. The movie's complete, which hmm. it's 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 heartbreaking hearing Reese talk about it because he clearly he clearly everyone was like, we love this film. And he's like, it's not done. It's a, you know, it's an incomplete work of art. It's it's crazy to think about. It. And I, I it came up on Twitter. I think uh, Tristan brought it up where it's like, would it have been better with that third act? And my thought is like, I don't know if it would have. This movie is so great. I don't know if it needs anything more. Yeah, I, I mean, I, like- I would love to have seen it. I'm sure Reese knew what he was doing, but I kind of like that there is this imagination and mystery that we can kind of think about what would happen when she goes south herself. Yeah, I like the abruptness of the death of the father, and then just that's kind of where it ends. Yeah, it too. Me too. For a movie as subtle as Elsa is, the brutality of going from the father seeing by himself in that restaurant after Estrella left him to seeing his body with a shotgun next to it in the middle of a field as the sun rises. It's just like, it's crushing. It reminds me of another more recent film. I don't know if you guys have seen Mia, Gen- Mia Hansen Love's um, Father of My Children. I have not. No. came out mm-hmm. uh, 10 or 15 years ago, I think, at this point. Uh, it's a movie that's based on uh, Humbert Balson, who was a producer, movie producer, who ended up committing suicide because, uh, you know, I guess they were having money trouble at the studio and uh, he was having trouble in his personal life. And so the first half kind of deals with him trying to, like, you know, uh, get his creditors to, like, you know, give him an extension and, like, trying to, like, save his studio and not have it liquidated. And then he kills himself in the middle of the movie and then it becomes about his family kind of dealing with his Hmm. suicide. And the second half even involves his daughter learning that he had a secret estranged son who he was sending money to, which is the, the unfilmed third act of El Sur is that she uh, goes to Seville and finds that he had, her father had this son that he was sending Mm. money to with the actress who he never told anybody about. That's what that, that part of the movie would have been. Oh, um, uh, there's, uh, well, this movie is just, it is a small details, but one small detail that I love 
that uh, I don't see enough of is um uh, during the first communion um, segment. Uh, like they, they kind of mention like, oh, well, dad never goes to church. And he he does go go to church that one day, but uh, my 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 dad's dad uh, who's just turned ninety three, uh, ninety three. Oh God, I think like yeah, um, he's one of those people. He has growing up and we'd visit at uh, we would, when we'd go to church or whatever. He just he'd never go. Whenever I asked anyone, they had to say like, well, Miller doesn't go to church, and that's why. And they everyone would say, he he doesn't. And there's and there's no uh no reason I've never no one's ever given me a reason yet still, but I'm wondering do you guys have uh like any of that like does that ring true for for you guys? Uh, well, I mean, you know, um, I, I don't know to whom I've explained this to, but you know, my grandfather is a priest. Um, so in the Catholic Church, if if you're a widower and all your children children have turned 18, so you're legally emancipated from them. You can then be confirmed as a priest. And so that's what my my grandfather did. And so he, he was a priest for the last, like, 25, 30 years of his life. Um, so you can imagine uh, <laughs> his kids went to church every week. <laughs> um, so I, I... Now, certainly, like, I did not continue that tradition as as ardently as as uh my dad or his siblings did um but yeah my i mean yeah my, my family were always just such regular churchgoers that i, I don't oh. really have that experience i mean i, I somebody might say that about me um <laughs> but but not not my dad certainly oh okay yeah i um I've definitely struggled with not being religious with my, you know, my parents who are not super religious. They're not Catholic. They're Episcopalian, uh, which is practically saying you're not religious at all. (laughs) But uh, like not taking my kids to church, you know, has always been like a weird, an awkward thing to like bring up in conversation between me Mm -hmm. and my folks. Mm -hmm. They, there's a lot more about that in the book with the father not oh, okay. not go, not being a churchgoer, not being particularly religious in a very religious region of Spain, uh, he's really considered an outcast for that reason. Even his uh, his I never know if it's divining or divining. I never know how to say it. Uh, his divining uh, that he he does for people it's something that like people are fascinated by in the town, but everyone's also kind of scared of it, and they kind of think of him almost like some weird sorcerer, mm. you know, living mm. who shows up and like does this thing, but it's almost considered like an unholy sort of thing. And he's definitely ostracized and his suicide in the book is really treated like, Oh, of course that's what happened to him. You know, he's not a religious person and he's obviously going to end up killing himself and go into hell. You know, no one is surprised by that. Uh, and I certainly can sympathize too with that kind of ostracization, you know, for that reason. And I do remember, um, you know, I don't remember much about my first communion, um, but the church and like the the Sunday school teachers were all like, "Okay, everybody, get your son and daughter a white outfit for first communion." And my parents were like, "I'm not buying my seven year old son a white suit. Get out of here." <laughs> uh, my parents still have 
My parents still have the like pictures from the first communion, like framed somewhere yeah. in the house. And my uh, my my Catholic side of my family, my mom's side, my grandpa still has like pictures of all our first communions in his house. And uh, yeah, well, like I went to Catholic school, so like the first communion thing was kind of a thing. Like, well, you have to do it because yeah. you're going to Catholic school. So uh, it wasn't. It wasn't as, as, as like well, John. You didn't go to Catholic school, so like it wasn't as expect. It wasn't expect like it wasn't as didn't well. I'm sorry. It like it was a big deal for like for uh for me when I was going through sex second grade with it. But it also, the thing is like, well, at the beginning of the year, you have to buy a special suit or whatever for first communion because that's like the big part of the year that everyone's looking forward to. Yeah, we're, the, the Episcopalians didn't give a shit what you wore to a communion. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. They did. There was there was very lax, very lax uh, kind of branch of uh, Christian doctrine there. I love yeah. that she is uh, unwilling to wear the white dress because she's been told she'd look like a bride, and she complains that brides have stupid faces, yeah. looks on their faces <laughs> in the pictures in the shop windows. And then later on, what do we see? We see her portrait in the shop window when she's older next to all those mm. brides with the stupid faces mm. and her father looking at it the way he looked at the same way he looked at the movie poster with Irene Rios, you know, and it longingly, like it's something that's gone, something that's like in the past, obviously like a, a big thing. The, the book has an epigram opens with an epigram that says, um, let's pull it out here. What can we love? That's not a shadow, which is, you know, obviously informs not only Arisa's, excessive use of shadows throughout the film, but the idea that the past is this shadow that you can never, that's never tangible anymore. That's just completely gone. Um, and there are all these kind of the flower in the shadows is the name of the movie with Irene Rios. And then later on, we see shadow of a doubt is the next yeah. movie. that's going to be playing all these shadows. Um, another thing, another connection that I really love is the movie itself, the, the flower in the shadows where the actor who comes in to confront, uh, confront her about being unfaithful to him grabs the flower and sniffs it and then later on in the restaurant the final scene with her father the way she's given the flower in the restaurant by the waiter who says you know you can keep it and when the father comes back the very first thing he says because he hears the uh the pasa doble right he hears an mm-hmm. uh, el the song that they had danced to when she was young and he says you know like that's that's our song you know, don't you recognize our song? And she so cruelly refuses to acknowledge it. You know, first she kind of almost pretends like she doesn't know what he's talking about, but she's just not willing to engage him. And like, don't you remember when we had this great relationship? Don't you remember this moment where it was magical between us and we loved each other and there was no complications in life? He's desperate to have this moment and she refuses to give it to him. It parallels what happens in that scene in Flower in the Shadows where he shoots her and picks her up as she's dying and says, I heard you singing our song. You know, we could have been mm. so happy together. You know, it's like they're almost playing out a real life version of this, you know, cheesy melodramatic movie that he has seen his former love in. It's, oh God, there's just so much in this movie that connects so well. And that's another reason why I feel like if they had gone further, if she'd gone to the South, if we'd gotten that moment, like would it have maintained that incredible, like tightness and connection that this, that the, thematically it has yeah i don't yeah, know because don't you know, know in the beginning when the mother is telling the Strilla about the south 
And she's then talking about how she imagined it as this far distant land, like it was on the other side of the globe. And, you know, how it never snows and how, you know, she's looking through these postcards and it's all full of, like, bright colors and women in flower dresses and palm trees. And if we had actually physically gone there, I think that would have taken away from some of the thematic resonance of that childhood fantasy of what the South was and how that contrasts with her life in the North, this, like, frozen to her like wasteland she talks about her house as being on the border in no man's land so if we we had gone to the mythical south i think that would have cut at at those those moments might have burst the bubble of the fantasy a little bit sure I, i i know exactly what you're saying Although I still feel a little ripped off. It's like Jason goes to Manhattan, where he doesn't really go to Manhattan. He spends most of the time on a cruise ship, and then he ends up in Vancouver, yeah. which is clearly not Manhattan. <laughs> we wanted to go to the South, Iris. Come on, man. It's not his fault. It's not his fault. So that that paired with, I guess, um, Spirit of the Beehive was made in the last days of the Franco regime. And so I, those two... I guess, mm-hmm. incredibly stressful experiences. Is that why he's only made three films? He, oh, yeah. The Elser experience uh, definitely marked him as a guy because the producer would say, we ran yeah. out of money, which wasn't true. And so it looked like Victor Reese was a guy who couldn't finish bringing a movie on budget, you know, and in time, which was complete bullshit. And so, of course, it was, you know, it was a major negative mark on his career. And then, Certainly the experience itself, I'm sure, uh, probably dissuaded him from wanting to be, more, you know, release more films, which is a bummer, although he supposedly has one coming out this year sometime. I, have no, I don't know anything about it. I don't know if it's going to be a feature film or a short or what, but hmm. it's listed on his, uh, yeah. his like IMDb and his letterbox and stuff. So fingers crossed. I would love to have another Victor Reese movie for sure. <laughs> And movies like this are such a magic trick to me, where uh, it's just so oppressively sad, and like there's so much like uh, loneliness in it, and like that, and just like the the slow build up of because like in some ways it reminds me of Eight and a Half, where uh, Eight and a Half is like, well it's better this is way better Eight and a Half, but Eight and a Half for me like the like it it's kind of dull until the last 10 minutes when it comes alive and it's like oh this is what sin was supposed to be where like <laughs> this where like elser was like the slow build-up of like the, the of just the emotion the, the emotions and then you get to the the final scene at the end where, where the last time she spoke to her dad and it's like like it's like like, like the first because i kind of went I, I was kind of scrubbed through it after i watched it just to uh, find key points to like think about but just going through it like this like that 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 moment of like her rejecting her father at the at, at the restaurant hotel or whatever it's like it, it just hit it's like a cannon like a, it goes from like to, it goes from just being you're observing people's behavior to like oh this is what all this was for just this one mm-hmm. moment and i know it, it like for i guess for you guys maybe it wasn't but for me it definitely was this like the build-up for that one moment and that one moment like just destroyed me absolutely uh, that scene is devastating and not to mention that like el el carioco 
the the boy who's pursuing her and putting up the Mm -hmm. graffiti and everything do you know what el carioco means uh no it's like bunghole is what it means (laughs) bungholio is what this guy is he's called he calls himself bunghole so imagine the last thing you say to your daughter in this world is be careful with the bunghole yeah (laughs) That's what he says. That's the last thing he says before he kills himself. Oh, my God. I did get... I hope that's not the last thing I say to my daughter. I did get the impression that it was some sort of absurd or obscene um, nickname just because of the way they approached... Like, the way the father talked about it and the very silly graffiti that he was leaving on the house. It Like, oh, this is a a dumb teenage boy who are the worst humans and he was uh pursuing (laughs) the daughter um but at one point some of the the voiceover says um estrella says i grew up more or less like everyone else getting used to being alone and not thinking too much about happiness like and that is a very teenage sentiment but i think in the context of like the scenes we were just talking about it is crushing you know that this this girl who had we saw like the warmth and the love that was in her house and with her father despite being in post civil war spain um the fact that it ends with such you know pessimism on her part is really tragic but then the fact that the story exists the fact that it's an adult woman narrating these stories i think is a fascinating perspective that estrella herself as an adult is trying to reckon with her memory of her father and and his legacy with her time and her the legacy of her father's time with her yeah, yeah, with a completely new retrospective kind of, yeah, sight. No question. And it's funny, too, because the first half is so set in the house. I mean, there's so much of the house in the first half as opposed to the second half, which really branches out and has scenes, you know, outside the house in the city and things like that. But that house is magical in that first half. I mean, that house is, you know, full of wonder. Just the shot of the, uh, for example, the frozen toy sailboat in the pond during the kind of montage and the fact that the dog is named Sinbad. This, this is another thing that kind of uh, would have been flushed out a little bit more, I think in the third act, because in the book they talk about how there's a lot of, it, it would have ended with or Reese himself says that she it would have ended with her stealing this book from uh, this, this kid who turns out to be her stepbrother. That's uh, about the seas, like the, the, the seas in the South of Spain and, uh, and the mystery of water basically would have come into it a lot. You want to talk about, uh, Del Toro, there yeah. you go. But um, uh, that shot of the sailboat, the frozen sailboat, put me in the mind of, uh, and, and the dog's name put me in the mind of Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger, that late 70s movie with uh, the Ray Harryhausen effects, in which uh, their ship freezes when they're in the North Polar Lands and they have to travel on the ice. They get attacked by a walrus. It's a whole thing. <laughs> um, and specifically, Zenobia, the evil sorceress in that film, transforms herself into a seagull to spy on Sinbad, and that's the name of the house that they're in, is the, the seagull, right? The La Gaviota. Mm-hmm. That there's a lot of, you know, a lot of focus on kind of magical fantasy in that way, where it's like, it's not evident in their everyday lives, but it's 
kind of all around them nevertheless. And maybe this like these mythical kind of things of the sea are connected to his like magical power that she hopes to inherit from him. That even like, like you said, there's no specific magical realism in the movie, the way that, you know, Frankenstein's monster does show up at the end of Spirit of the Beehive. It still has this feel of a fantasy throughout the entire film, even more so in the first half. And it's even more devastating in the second half where that's kind of been lost. That's kind of one of the things that's been lost in the movie. Even though it never stops being absolutely beautiful, obviously. Yeah, it's a a good use of color palette where, like, not to be one who's like, well, modern Hollywood, blah, 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 but, like, the muted color palette that can be used sometimes is, like, you're just trying to be gritty, this is bullshit, but the color palette here, it just, it fits everything. Absolutely. Yeah, it's painterly and that, that, uh, the contrast of light and dark, you know, and the sparse, the sparse rooms too are like a big thing where it seems at one time, like at one point she's sitting and there's, you know, you can see like the trees that's part of the wallpaper or, you know, in the background and it looks almost like she's in a magical forest. But then you kind of think about how there's like no furniture in the room besides like her bed and the father's room where he supposedly is working on crazy magical experiments is completely empty, you know, besides a chair. Uh, and these kind of weird dark rooms that they've kind of like made for themselves in this place that are slowly killing him. This emptiness that is like, again, the shadows of the past that he just, you know, can never have again, that he can never return to our, our prison cell he set up for himself. That's just like slowly making him deteriorate. It's absolutely tragic to see it happening. Even while the whole time it's through her eyes, uh, completely magical. And, you know, just to bring it back to Almodovar uh, for a second, this the, the cinematographer of all that beautiful imagery mm-hmm. is Jose Luis, is it Alcane? Is that how you pronounce his last name? Uh, um, but but he's he's done so. several movies with uh, Almodovar, so just to give credit to, to some of that Im- imagery to, to him. Uh, uh, uh. Yeah, but I I also wonder like uh, if the Spanish industry maybe that uh, is like kind of a small industry, so everyone kind of works with everyone a little bit, or if it like, or I don't know. But uh, I think Almodovar is definitely a filmmaker who that very respect is very respectful mm-hmm. of the history of Spanish cinema and has used actors obviously and crew members who have you know been around for decades. And have been, you know, part of that cinema their entire life. Oh, yeah, because I feel like besides, well, uh, actually, last last time Chris was on here, I, I kind of mentioned Boon, we were talking Boonwell, and he was like, I don't, and he Chris was like, he doesn't really think of Boonwell as a Spanish filmmaker. Oh, which, I don't either. Sure. Which, which, I, which I guess technically uh, the the most famous Spanish filmmaker would be a Motivar, but I guess technically it is Boonwell, but Boonwell kind of isn't like. He doesn't really have like a country tied to him, at least to me. Yeah, he's definitely a yeah, citizen Boonwell of the his world, own country yeah, for sure. Yeah, mm-hmm. I absolutely agree. Yeah, even though there is so much about Spanish culture in Boonwell films, you know, I always think about the famous ending. Um, oh my God, having an old man. Uh, he has a lot of wacky endings. I'm not sure. Uh, Nazarin, I'm thinking of Nazarin, the end of Nazarin, which is specifically 
tied to the beating of the drums from the place where he grew up in Spain. They would beat the drums uh, every Easter to represent the rising of Christ. And to him, it was oppressive, you know, <laughs> it was this uh, religion that was, you know, literally pounding in your ears, you know, like this religious uh, society that was all around you and inescapable, you know, kind of comes up at the end of that movie where uh, he's, you know, depending on how you interpret the end of the film with Nazarene is, you know, rejecting his, his uh, Christ crusade or going off to his death to be martyred. Uh, that like oppressive drumming, you know, is definitely something that's linked specifically to Boonwell's youth dealing with religion in Spain and the culture of religion in Spain, which is obviously uh, can be very oppressive. Yeah. And I think that you definitely see that more explicitly in spirit of the beehive, you know, with the portrait of St. Jerome looming over the characters in, in so many scenes. Um, you know, there's this huge skull in the corner of the portrait and this sort of emaciated old man who was is the patron saint of, you know, librarians and s- scholars just looking over you as you're trying to do your own s- scholarly work. And then, of course, later you have this sort of like holy visitation from Frankenstein's monster. I I think that the oppressiveness of religion and spirituality is is much more explicit in, in spirit of the beehive, but you still get it with the, the mystical nature of the father in El Sur. Yeah. Um, I, I meant to bring, I forgot to bring this up, uh, when recorded on dark habits a week ago, but um, getting to like the, it connects to um Elser uh, to some degree with like the Franco regime in that time period, where um at because uh, the, the the part in uh, Dark Habits where they're t- where the the mother superior is like, well it can be like the it's gonna be like the good old days we're gonna have uh killers whores and, and addicts again praise the Lord, which that makes me think that since Franco had such strong ties to the Catholic Church. Is, is that insinuating that like things were uh, busier when Franco was in power and they had that stronger Catholic connection? And 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 I was saying like in nineteen eighty three Spain, the church isn't as powerful as it used to be. I I don't know enough about Catholicism in Spain. Um. To to be able. To, to speak oh. to that. I, mean, I I know much more about the the political connection between Catholicism and the Italian government, but uh, that's not here nor there to, to this podcast, so I'm, yeah. I'm not the person to ask. Okay, yeah. I, that's the thing I've been yeah. thinking about, because like, I know Franco had, like, if, if a movie was Pope approved, Franco would be like, okay, that's okay, that, yeah. that's fine. Like, he yeah, had... and um, throughout a lot of the 20th century the Catholic Church was a lot like the American government in, in that will ally with anybody who's not a communist, and that includes fascist mm. dictatorships, which, you know, is pretty fucking frustrating. Yeah. yeah. One thing you say for sure is that Franco was a huge hypocrite, yeah. obviously, and would use any kind of, like, power structure he could for his own gain. I mean, he even said, you know, towards the end of his brain that he, you know, hey, we're we're cool. I want to let you know there's no censorship. Like, you can say whatever you want. Boonwell, we're talking about, made Viridiana. And he was like, yeah, go ahead and do it. Like, come back to Spain, Boonwell. Be like a Spanish filmmaker again. And then they immediately seized it, you know, and tried to destroy every print of it uh, after it was made. And Spirit of the Beehive was a revolutionary film because 
people just would not make films set after the Civil War. They would not make mm. films about the Franco regime um, and the fact that, you know, here was one that set right after the end of the Civil War was something that people just weren't doing. People weren't making films about, like, what it's like now, uh, you know, living in Spain with Franco in power. So <clears throat> even in that, like, you can just imagine, like, how important these films were when they were coming out and actually talking about these decades of Franco, you know, Franco being in control. John, do you know what the Spanish cinema scene was, was like in those years? I mean, just because I'm, I'm trying to, you know, get a handle on sort of Victor Reese's place in film history, just because like, just, from my personal perspective, it seems like such an enormous oversight that I that it it took me so long to to see these movies. So I'm just wondering, you know, like like in the '70s and '80s, who was watching these movies, who was being influenced by these movies? If if you have if you have any knowledge of that, I think at this time in the '60s and '70s, almost every major country has a new wave. Except for Spain, you know, (laughs) like, uh, like French new wave, German new wave, Hollywood new wave, everything like that. Uh, I'm I'm sure someone probably better versed in Spanish cinema will say there was technically a new wave. It was this and this and this, but you had filmmakers like Carlos uh, Sora who would, you know, use Anna Torrent in his own film, Crea Cuervos, which is also a fantastic film, um, making subversive kind of movies, but that were deeply, deeply buried within like standard stories, you know, you really had to dig deep to like get into them. And again, I think that's part of, you know, just sort of the era that they were being made in that they couldn't be explicitly critical of what life in Spain was like at the time. But I think the reason that these movies weren't getting seen and didn't have like that kind of international exposure that so many other countries did is that there simply wasn't like a set group of filmmakers who were like, now it's our turn, you know, every get out of here, you fuddy duddies. Like we're here to take over. They didn't like get that. Yeah. Even Japan had a new wave at this time, you know, like everybody was kind of experiencing like a, a new bunch of filmmakers. And Victor Arias, I think, too, is somebody who could easily confound uh, because he's such a classic. He's such a classist kind of filmmaker in, in, in a way. He's such a formalist in a way that there is something very traditional about his movies that's still completely new, but like might not be completely evident immediately. To people, you know, it doesn't have like, I don't know, like, like weird editing, like the French New Wave or whatever, you know, it doesn't have like a specific signature uh, outlaw sort of technique Mm -hmm. to them. I think that's sort of like the Tarkovsky connection is that they have this very methodical kind of way of filming, but it's not show offy. I don't even know what the word I'm looking for is, but like, it's not something that's going to be like, I immediately recognize this as something different and new and it's really like blowing my, my mind here. It's something that's very contemplative. It's something that really asks you to like think about it. And I think that might even be another argument for like the third uh, act of this movie missing is like you need to contemplate more. You need to sit down and think about like where it would go from here mm-hmm. rather than just kind of let it sit on its own. But uh, that's my best answer. Yeah. Sorry. I, yeah, I don't, I don't know a ton about Spanish cinema. But again, I think it's because it has not been as written about or studied as a lot of these other big movements yeah. in film at that time. Yeah. Like as far as I know, like after Franco died, that's when things 
you were allowed to be. Like, the reason Amodovar could make movies the way he did was because Franco yeah. was dead. Because, sure. like, yeah. there's no way, like, the Catholic Church would approve of, like, the super queer early comedies that, like, the, like the John Waters style comedies that Amodovar was, was making at the time, was going to make. Yeah, just the opportunity to look forward, I think, is something that was not afforded to them uh, until, uh, yeah, until post-Franco, for sure. I think everyone had to keep looking at, like, what we've lost here, you know, like, what we've had to deal with for the last, you know, three decades. Yeah, and, um, the, the, like, the only ones, like, I can think of offhand are De La, De Iglesia, the guy about the El Pico movies. He was real active after Franco's death and Namotavar. I know there are other people too, but it's just lack kind of lack of access and and I just I really don't know much about like Spanish cinema like Frank from before like the I guess two thousands basically because like like a lot like a lot of African cinema, like it's a lot of it's just you can't find it anywhere. Yeah, I guess that speaks to the tragic effectiveness of fascism in in <laughs> suppressing free speech and art. Yeah, which is not to suggest that there weren't interesting filmmakers, you know, making movies during Franco. I mean, there's uh, Juan Antonio Bardem, you know, makes Death mm-hmm. of a Cyclist, which is a really interesting film. Um, a filmmaker who's really interesting that I know Almodovar is a huge fan of is uh, Louis Garcia Berlanda who made films like The Executioner and Placido. So, you know, there's definitely interesting artists working during that time. I just think that they're just not getting the opportunity to get seen outside yeah. of Spain, probably because yeah. of the, you know, the rage, the, the, the government at the time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, um, well, uh, Krebs, what, um, what's your history with, uh, with a motive are like, uh, I, 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 th- I you told me you're not that much of a fan, but like, what, like, can you remember how you first heard of him? Uh, yeah, I'm not a big fan. He he was someone who would like always pop up in like movie books I would buy. I remember um, uh, uh, Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown is a movie that would come up a lot. As like, this is the Spanish film you should see, this one, you know? And see, seeing and being like, yeah, that's okay. That's all right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like just not engaging it. And uh, kind of having this opinion of him as like, he kind of started off as a John Waters type where he was doing something very specifically camp and like very, you know, subversive. Then then he kind of became like a, a boring award monger, you know, like kind of like just Mm. did like, you know, art film that was very, very safe for everybody, which isn't to say there aren't films of his. I like a lot. I like talk to her. I like the, um, uh, the skin I live in is really good. Even though I don't know if the politics of that film would sit well with people these days. Um, but it's a really well made horror movie. So there are definitely movies I like. He's just not, not somebody who I ever really connected with, I think, in a significant way, the way that I did a lot of other filmmakers. But, oh, okay. uh, you know, definitely an important yeah. guy, for sure. Yeah, because, like, I, 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 I've, I covered this in an earlier episode, but, like, I first heard of him via, only because I would see Volver at Blockbuster all the time. And so yeah. I was like, I'm not going to watch Volver. It looks like an Oscar movie. And then I started watching, like, the the later ones. I was like, oh, I actually do like this. It's, but for me, I had no, like, I knew no one who watched his movies. It was just, like, I started watching them, and so I had no no idea I was getting into. So there was no, um, uh, like, no build up or hype or anything. It was just like these are just movies that exist in the world that that I just happened to stumble into. 
Yeah. Yeah, I get that. It's uh, his most recent. What was his most recent film? What was that called? It was the one with Antonio Banderas. There's um. No, 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 no. Not the Antonio Banderas. I'm sorry. The one with um, um Penelope Cruz. Oh, um, Parallel Mothers. Yes, Parallel Mothers. I think, and maybe it's not fair to compare, but you know, has that kind of subplot about you know the ramifications of the Civil War and like unearthing. Victims of the Civil War ex- excavating their their bodies specifically, that just feels phony compared to a movie like Spirit of the Beehive. It feels like you know Hollywood version of like looking back at like this dark time in Spanish history. Yeah, so like I always have like negative like reactions to those things. Mm. Um, so yeah, so so it's hit and miss for me with El Motivar. Oh, okay. Uh, what was anything else? Oh, like, uh, okay, well, one more, like, movie that's, like, this is kind of a, a bit of a stretch, but thematically it kind of ties in, is the Harun movie, Abuna, the one from 2002, and it's about these two boys who, their dad runs, runs away from, abandons the family in the middle of the night, and it just follows these boys over the next, I think, three or four years. And uh, this them growing up and being like, well, where's our dad? What happened to him? And I'm not going to say what well, specifics, but it's a, if you've seen a Haroon movie, you can expect it will get, there will be a tragedy at some point because he loves to have horrific things happen in his movies. Uh, but um, emotionally horrific things, I should, I should clarify. It's not like, it's a different type, it's a, a specific type of like, tragedy he loves to make over and over again but uh it definitely has a similar vibe to this of just like this is just these boys like you know trying to like you, you never you only see a dad in the opening as he leaves and it's just the rest of trying to the family trying to figure out like okay what do we do now since you know our dad the person who kept the family afloat and in uh stable like what do we do? What do we do from this point on? I am totally yeah. That's cool. I haven't, yeah, I, I haven't I seen have that not one either. Hmm? Have you two seen any Haru? No, I have not. Uh, I don't think so. What are his other movies? Uh, Screaming Man, uh, The Rot. Oh, Screaming Man, I've seen. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 That, uh, that was great. It, it really is great. I talked about it with Martin Kessler on his old podcast, I think like four years ago at this point, maybe five years ago. Time time really flies. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, so, um, yeah, El Sir, I don't know, like, I, I think I think it's streaming in a couple, I found it on uh, just Google Play and YouTube as of now. It could be on uh, Cartierian channel, I don't subscribe to that because... Uh, I'll be honest. Uh, uh, Ring of Honor Wrestling came back, and I saw like, well, that's more important to me than Criterion. So I, I'd rather watch Ring of Honor Wrestling than um, uh, <laughs> Criterion. That's reasonable, sure. <laughs> so if it's on that channel, uh, great. And if not, you can just like rent it uh, on um, uh, Google Play. Yeah, I'm not a big physical media guy, but if there's one movie, I would say. Go out and buy the Blu-ray of this movie. It's El Sir, for sure. The book comes with the Criterion package. Oh, that's awesome. The original book. 
Yeah, and there's uh, yeah, it's worth it for sure. There's all the uh, supplements are great. Uh, although again, it's heartbreaking to watch Victor yeah. Reese talk about not getting to finish the film. Um, and, and while I mentioned the book, I'm just going to read this one quick sentence from it that I think just really sums up really well kind of the interesting, beautiful despair of the movie, which is she's she narrates the book. She says, "I remember that I took this is after she's had a, a fight with her father and been disillusioned with her father." She says, I remember that I took off running without crying, openly fleeing from you and leaving you alone in the shadow of the night that was falling. When I arrived home, I didn't look back. And when I looked, locked myself in my room, I discovered that there was no suffering or rage or fear or anguish in me. There was nothing. That was the closest thing to death that I had known in my life. And hmm. I think that, you know, the idea of growing up and you know, of course it's easy to call these movies coming of age movies you know like a cute little subgenre sort of label for them but like this is a movie where it's like the tragedy is like you get older and that magic dies and like what happens is you feel start to feel nothing and starting to feel nothing is like the first steps to death really compare you know is this movie's philosophy and this book's philosophy the idea of like once everything is a shadow to you once there is nothing tangible in your life once you don't have a connection to the people around you anymore, like that's when you might as well depart. And it's like, there's these horrible moments in the book where the father says things like, uh, Oh, to have the Liberty to like die when I want to, you know, like I, like he feels this obligation to his wife and his daughter. That's why he can't, you know, exit the world the way he wants to is just, just, Oh, it's just searing kind of things. So anyway, point is, Definitely, I don't usually shill for for Blu-rays or Criterion or anything, but like this is one that's definitely worth it. If you only buy one Criterion in your life, buy Spirit of the Beehive or Elser for sure. I would also say um, Tuki Puki. <laughs> Tuki Puki's great too, <laughs> and maybe maybe like one of the other ten African movies they have now. Okay, they got a lot of good movies. <laughs> yeah, they're starting to re- realize Africa has a lot of movies that are made there. Yeah. It is a good thing uh, about Criterion is that they have said, oh, we have been mistaken or we have underrepresented this entire region of the world. We need to do better. Um, and they are slowly making strides to to, to do that. So the, there's at least that uh, for them. But. Yeah, I, they, they do important yeah. work and everything. Yes. It's just like, at the same time, I'm just so tired of trying to be like, looking up some African film from like the 80s and being like, well, is there a French DVD yeah. of it that I can like import? Because <laughs> <laughs> half time it's on YouTube, but there are no subtitles in that, and I don't know like whatever the local language is, if I can get some of their French, it's like, well, I, I'm only getting half of this. So, whatever. Uh, yeah, this is a discussion for a whole nother time. But, um, I had the same experience trying to get early Christopher Lambert movies. <laughs> 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 Anything pre-Tarzan, forget about it. Yeah, he's a guy that, like, until I saw white material... I was like, he's a joke because I'd only seen his Hollywood movies where he has like, because like, his accent is kind of goofy. When he kind speaks of English. goofy. And then seeing him in White Material, <laughs> and White Material, like, oh, he's an actor. He he, he yeah. should he should be speaking French in every movie. 
<laughs> he speaks French in a lot of movies. He's great. Yeah, but to me, he's he's like he's Lord Raiden, and so like that kind of tainted sure. him for me. <laughs> Who should we cast as a Japanese god? A Frenchman. <laughs> <laughs> he did it he did it before marvel could get there marvel cinematic universe could do it yeah all right so um uh uh j-dog do you uh like elser would you recommend oh yeah it? i would definitely recommend elser um i i i managed what about the what about the people with daughters uh yeah <laughs> If you have parents or children or do not, I would definitely recommend watching both Spirit of the Beehive and El Sur. It will um, pull at your heartstrings, make you reflect on your na- on your relationship with your your child, your niece, your nephew, your your parents, um, and they're just gorgeous to look at. And and if you've if you're like me, a fan of Guillermo del Toro, and you've never seen these movies, and absolutely. Uh, check them out. And Del Toro is thankfully a filmmaker who is very upfront with his influences and loves to talk about how the art that he's consumed has influenced him. So he's not somebody who pretends to have, you know, not seen these movies. Yeah. Uh, I, would, I would especially recommend it to fathers. Just to prepare you for that moment where your daughter brings home a guy with El Coroco written, you know, <laughs> tattooed on his arm. I'm here to pick up your daughter and the TV. <laughs> I've been watching Beefs and Butthead clips from the original series on YouTube uh, yeah. right lately, and it's like I can just get lost for hours watching this stuff. It's it's just so so much fun. Oh uh, yeah, huge fan. Yeah, and there's a a, a ten minute uh, clip that someone did on YouTube of dubbing uh, Beavis and Butthead over the Zelda cartoon from the '80s, and called "The Legend of Beavis," and it's really good. The like the the dubbing they did actually like lines up very well. I'll have to check that out. <laughs> yeah, my uh, wife recently sent me a quote from Carl Sagan where he was talking about like the decline of America. And specifically that like everyone's watching Beavis and Butthead. And my thought was like, I respect Dr. Carl Sagan more than almost anybody who's ever existed. Yeah. But stay off, stay away from Beavis and Butthead, dude. Give me a break. Come on, Carl. Lighten up. <laughs> I bet, Lighten up, I bet Carl. Richard Feynman liked Beavis and Butthead. <laughs> I guaranteed. <laughs> okay, so uh yeah, this is nineteen eighty three. Um, I have a couple of quick ones. Um, first off, Breathless, the good version of Breathless, not the uh, <laughs> stinky, boring Godard one. It's a Godard movie, so it's going to be at best uh, important, but not good, uh, in my opinion. But Breathless, 1983, it's like it's the inverse of the Godard one. It's super fun. It's super loud. It's super colorful. You get to see a naked Richard Gere in a shower. Um, I mean, what else do you need? Belmondo. You need Belmondo, man. <laughs> uh, are you one of those people that likes the original more than the remake? I certainly love Belmondo more well, than Richard obviously. Gere. Obvious no question. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Would you rather have 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 been uh, Belmondo naked in a shower than Richard Gere? Um. Yeah. Yeah. 
For sure. Okay. Well, I've watched a movie with Richard Gere before. Uh, <laughs> uh, I watched The Marriage of Maria Braun, which with Richard Gere sitting in front of me. Oh, not wow. naked. Not well, naked. I'd hope not if he's in a theater. Right. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah. Okay, my other one is... I haven't done this in a long time. I own the I own the disc, but I haven't watched it yet because school takes up a lot of my time. Um, uh, Bless their little hearts, the Billy Woodbury movie. I've known about it for a while. I think the first person I knew who championed it was Intume, because uh, or Marcus, one of those two. Because it's pretty much only those two would only those are two people I really know who really talk about the LA Rebellion stuff. A whole lot, but uh, there's a disc from Kino for Bless a Little Hearts, and uh, it's one that once I have free time again, I will definitely get to. Uh, so, I, so anytime I can bring up black film, especially LA Rebellion stuff, uh, I will I will make a point to bring it up. And there's a, James, a couple of James Bond movies from this year that I'll leave up to you two because I assume one of you two will will bring it up. I mean. Yeah. I think we've talked out James Bond, me and Arminia. <laughs> I, mean, I, I, I think we're all talked out. I think if I'm talking about movies, I have to suppress the urge to talk about James Bond. Uh, okay, then I'll I'll say sure. Octopussy. It 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 took me a long time to like it, uh, like like three watches. But after that, it's like, oh, it's just like kind of it's it's objectively bad. I know that, but. I just like it. It's uh, it just makes me happy. And the, me too. Um, me too. It, it is a, it is a James Bond movie where it's like this isn't good, <laughs> but I I don't want to turn it off. I just really like this <laughs> right now. <laughs> yeah, not to make things too sad, but my uh, maternal grandma, one of the last gifts she got me for Christmas was the big uh, 50, 50th anniversary uh, Blu-ray box set. Awesome. Oh, that's that. Cool. Uh, I. I I have not watched any of them since she died because I'm paranoid if a disc gets fucked up or I break the case, like I I can't replace this. So so like for me, I'm kind of superstitious where it's like I'd rather just pay for a rental on I'd rather pay for a rental online <laughs> than like potentially ruin like the last gift my grandma got me. Oh, so just sitting there in the <laughs> shrink wrap up on your shelf? No, I I've watched all the discs, but then okay. I just. It's just like I, I'm really superstitious. And I think that that's a good reason to be kind of superstitious about that. <laughs> oh, that's that's nice. Yeah. Some people more, leave, yeah. some people leave their kids pendulums, and some leave them James Bond anniversaries. I know which one I'd rather have. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, and there's a memoir movie from the, from '83, but I assume. Uh, another person here has picked it, so I'm you assume correctly, sir. You assume <laughs> correctly. Yeah, I know who I I know who I have on the show. It's going to be <laughs> <Yeah>. Arminio. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm done. I uh, have some uh, 1983 movies. There, uh, yeah. Um, so one I've actually podcasted with on Movies from Hell before. Uh, Something Wicked This Way Comes, the Ray. Bradbury adaptation with Jonathan Price as Mr. Dark. Um, it's great. It's one of the it's one of the best movies where if you have like a 
a 10 to 15 year old who's flirting with horror, show them something wicked this way comes. It's it's really good. Um, and this is a. I refuse to see that movie for so long. Yeah. Because I love the book so much. The book lives in my mind so much that I just didn't want to see a movie version of it. And I finally did a few years ago when we did a Ray Bradbury week on the Pink Smoke. So okay. finally did catch up with it. But for the longest time, I was like, no, no. What did you think? Um, it was, again, I feel like I was a little prejudiced because sure. I love the book so much. Um, okay. I thought it was, I thought it was okay. I didn't think, it, didn't think it was great, but, uh, okay. but yeah, it was okay. Didn't, didn't, uh, like, Oh, I really wish I could have seen this earlier. Maybe I would have had a different opinion of it, but. And then, um, this is a movie that I became aware of because of the all our haunts BRs, uh, box set from Severin, uh, eyes of fire directed by Avery Krauts. It's a really cool, uh, Ooh. folk horror movie set in colonial America. And I, I think there is there's this tradition in folk horror where it's like, oh, the evils of the land itself is is what's causing these ghosts or what's caused all the, the sin that it has has happened in on in this area. But Eyes of Fire is about how, no, all the murder that's been done by colonialists is what's caused all this evil. Uh, and so it's a little bit of a, a flip of that trope, and it makes it more interesting. Uh, and so I would recommend you giving it a shot. It's a movie that was completely off my radar, and why a outlet like Severin is, is important, because it brings to light movies that I would never have heard of if it wasn't for them. So. Uh, I just remembered something. Um, Har- Harlan Ellison had brought up earlier, and a friend of mine, J.P. Barons, who is an author... Uh, I'll actually post a link to his most recent book um, in an episode. Uh, he used to go to like Dragon Con and all that stuff every year, and he, he kind of became friendly with Harlan, Harlan Ellison uh, for a number of years. And he said, uh, the thing is never say anything potentially stupid in front of him because he will never respect you and he will just destroy you and roast you if he thinks you're stupid. <laughs> <laughs> and my Harlan, fr- all right. Yeah, and my friend, he, um, JP, like, uh, he, I guess he, like, he never said anything stupid because he had Harlan was always nice to him. So I guess he was, uh, you know, clever enough. <laughs> <laughs> clever enough for Harlan. Good. What, what a way to be friends with, with somebody. Just live in fear of them roasting you for, for saying something stupid. I bet I've said ten <laughs> stupid things in this podcast. <laughs> anyway, Mr. Cribs, do you have any recommendations? Oh, do you have one more? I think you only did two, right? Um, if, uh, uh, sure. More. Um, fine. Fire and Ice by Ralph Bakshi. If you, if you like sword yes. and sorcery shit... Watch Fire and Ice. It's my favorite Ralph, ba- Ralph Bakshi movie. It's absolute fun. You like Conan. You like people's heads getting chopped off. Fire and Ice is, is going to be your jam. Hey, do you like the movie Heavy Metal? Watch Fire and Ice for fucking real. Uh, Bakshi is always yes. interesting. I never said yeah. good. Always interesting. That's yeah. why I love Bakshi. I tried to get my wife to prove showing it to the kids just mm-hmm. about a week ago. Got the thumbs down. 
Why not try Coonskin <laughs> next? There you go. <laughs> That's the best one, but also it's like if someone I can't recommend Coonskin yeah. to anyone. I think it's great, but uh yeah. <laughs> it's Coonskin. It's Un- unfortunately <laughs> I think the approval is gonna be cool world, if anything, you know. <laughs> yeah, that's more interesting than good. <laughs> yes. Perfect summary right there. Uh, Fire Nice. Yeah, The Ballad of Nariyama. Yeah. Uh, Shohei Imamura's remake of the 1958 film by uh, Kisuki Kinoshita, which is, uh, you know, about the village where when a elder reaches a certain age, they take them up to the mountain to die. Uh, is a spectacularly wonderful film. Actually, would uh, I think complement El Sur would be a good double feature because they're both kind of about these connections and, you know, saying goodbye to the past and how these kind of people living in isolated villages, kind of what life is like there. Um, dog fucking. Obviously, dog fucking in memoirs <laughs> certainly a little more ribald than Richter or Reese, I would definitely say. Um, I mean, there's a whole situation about you know like uh you know what brother has to make love to a wife or else he or a wife has to make love to this guy's brother or else he's uh uh going to be romancing the livestock and he they can't have that and you know there's all kinds of absurd situations involved but it is an incredibly uh gorgeous film in is fantastic obviously it's another great japanese uh release that year from the great Kani Chikawa. His uh, version of the um, Mekioka Sisters, the novel by Junichiro uh, Tanizaki, is another fantastic... They're just killing it in Japan that year, I think. Uh, I'd also recommend... Uh, this, this seems Almodovar parallel, sort of, a little bit. Uh, Pal Verhoeven's The Fourth Man, his Hitchcock pastiche, which is, you know, also kind of like got interesting, uh, kind of transgressive and progressive sort of uh, sexuality in it. Uh, and is also like a great, just a fun thriller, just a great like hallucinatory fun thriller with a fantastic lead performance uh, by Jerome Crabbe. And uh, if you haven't seen The Fourth Man, if you haven't seen the uh, Dutch films of Paul Verhoeven, I couldn't recommend those any higher. And speaking of Ribold, those are certainly fit the bill there. And the other film I would recommend from 1983 is The Right Stuff, oh, yes. the Philip Kaufman movie, which is one of those films that, you know, is a big Hollywood release, gets Oscar nominations, but is actually great. It's actually one you should believe is great. Very rare that this kind of thing happens where it's actually a uh, lauded film that is worth your time. And something I was just reading recently was um, that I didn't know about was that um, uh, William Goldman was brought on to do the screenplay, to work with Philip Kaufman on the screenplay, the adaptation of the Tom Wolfe uh, book. And... Goldman was like, okay, what we got to do, we got to jettison Jaeger. We got to get rid of Chuck Jaeger because it has nothing to do with the space program. You know, we should focus just on the astronauts. And Philip Kaufman was not having it. Basically kicked William Goldman to the rear, to the curb, because he wanted to get rid of Chuck Jaeger. And Goldman's final word on it was, yeah, Kaufman just uh, could not get over Chuck Jaeger. He He was absolutely hero struck. You know, loved Carl Yeager to uh, Chuck Yeager too much to like not include him in the movie, which is great because the Chuck Yeager stuff is the best stuff in the yeah, movie. Absolutely. I love it with Sam Shepard. Uh, oh, it's so good. That stuff is fantastic. So the right stuff is the right stuff, in my opinion. 
not not very not a great pairing with El Sur necessarily, but certainly if you want to get over if you're feeling blue after seeing El Sur, the right stuff would be the right ticket. Yeah. All right. So, um, Mr. Cribs, yeah, the, your remaining picks are Anguish. I presume the Zelda Rubenstein movie when you're talking about the Zelda Rubenstein. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. That movie's great. Um, Arbeto, Arbeto, uh, Beto, uh, Arbeto, uh, Watermere, mm-hmm. Strange Voyage, and uh, Vampire. Oh, the, the re- recut edit thing. Uh, yes, the recut of the uh, Dracula movie. Yes. So, um, what do you? Which do you want to p- uh, pick next? Oh, I'll leave it up to you, man. I'm up for talking about any of them. Oh, okay. I I like to ask uh, yeah, what 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 they're feeling the strongest about to cover next, but yeah, I, I'll figure it out. What to cover? What pick next? So yeah, uh, uh, let's see. Anything? No, that's it. So uh, I write for Grumpire on occasion. I have a piece on uh, for their punk mo- column, like movies that are secretly punk uh, thing that I pitched two years ago that now I am almost done and uh, it should be up and ready in a month or two. I, th- I hope so, but I don't know if I'll have it fully uh, uh, worked out by then. I do the action movie column sometimes when I can, when I have time to watch new action movies. And besides that, uh, I'm on movies from hell sometimes. I'm on Grindbend podcast like once a year or so, and uh, uh, I have a, a movie blog thing that I don't update anymore, and I have a after history blog thing that is a lot of work. And school kind of took up all of my study brain uh, space. So when I have free time, I'll I'll probably get back to the African history stuff. But besides that, yeah, I have I got nothing else. Sounds like enough uh, to me. You're an accomplished fellow, Spencer. Yeah. <laughs> oh, thank you. I, I don't feel like I am, but I guess I am. Uh, Ar- Armenia, what do what uh, you got coming Well, up? I am continuing the uh, Popcorn Eschaton project uh, with Scott Thorough. That's on the Zebras in America podcast feed. Um, don't tell the guys on the Pink Smoke podcast, but... I talked with Scott and Marcus Penn about a couple of Terrence Malick movies. Um, <laughs> I might have gotten turned around on him. Uh-oh. <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. Marcus Penn <laughs> likes to talk about... Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> Get out of here. I did not know that at all. Uh, yeah, so that so that, that was a really great conversation. Uh, I, I had a lot of, uh, a lot of fun with, with that one. Did he bring up the screening of To the Wonder where we made him feel so bad? No, he did not. Um, yeah. I'm surprised. He loves bringing that up. He loves <laughs> making us feel bad about how bad we made him feel coming out of that screening and making fun of that movie. Um, I, I, I like that movie. Uh-oh. Um, <laughs> and, um, and hey, um, speaking of The Pink Smoke, uh, we're going to be recording another... Spy Movie Marathon with uh, Bill Scurry uh, next week. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, um, and yes, you can catch me blabbering about comic books and movies at Quasar Sniffer on Twitter and Instagram. 
All right, and Mr. Crib. Uh, oh, also, well, uh, also Armando, thank you for being replaced by Joel for the episode. Substitute uh, J Dog. Yep. And as of now, you're stripped of the title J Dog, unless I need you again for a replacement <laughs> <Sure>. uh, <laughs> co-host. Uh, I, uh, Mr. Cribs, uh, you're a busy man. What do you have uh, coming up? Am I a busy man? I I need to get back to writing, man. Just hearing you talk about uh, all your projects, Spencer, makes mm. me feel like I just got to get back to writing about movies. I would love to do that. I haven't published anything recently, and I miss it. I really just have never have the time. Just have such a busy, regular, daily routine that it's just hard to find the time. But it's okay because I feel that time with watching lots and lots of spy movies so I can talk to John Arminio and Bill Scurry about them. And that's always fun. Um, that's going to be a two-parter episode on the Pink Smoke podcast, which I'm very much looking forward to. We've got lots of other fun episodes coming up as well. Yeah, I love the recent uh, epic episode on Swishbucklers. That's, yes, yes, that's, that was... I listened to it a couple times. It's just a great background thing of like, I can kind of zone out and listen to you guys talk about stuff in a smart way. And be like, maybe I should watch that movie. Maybe I shouldn't watch that movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know how many of those I would recommend actually watching, but it was fun to watch them and to talk about them. That's that's a very pink smoke episode. That one. It was absolutely sure. fantastic. Yeah. yeah, very smoke topic. Very <laughs> pink smoke topic. <clears throat> All right, and uh, see, coming up uh, is. Uh, the, the next plane recording is on Arsenic and Old Lace with the band Rat Bath. They're a, a queer country punk band. I guess that, that's how I would describe them. I don't know how they describe themselves, but like it's very punky, very with, with like a country feel, and it, everyone in the band is queer, and it's it's awesome. By their music, yeah, they're great. Camp, and uh, oh, yeah, and uh, Jake Lindbergh will be on episode two, and. Uh, yeah, so uh, maybe Jay will be on that one. I don't know. And then there'll be a little break, and uh, we're going to tell other stuff. But, uh, yeah, that's it. So uh, thank you for listening. Uh, John and John, thank you for thank your you time. Thank you for having us. Thanks, Spencer. It's always a good time, man. Oh, yeah, you're welcome. And uh, see you guys for uh, maybe Arctic and Old Lace. I haven't decided on the episode or orders yet. Our theme music is by James Fell. Our logo is by Andrew Bargeron. You can find him as Jemetsko on Threadless, TeePublic, Redbubble, Shirt Woot Catalog, and T-Theory. That is spelled G-I-M-E-T-Z-C-O. You can find our show in previous seasons on Podbean, Spotify, Google Play, and other places where you can find podcasts.